0: Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Measure Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Nick Mehta, CEO of Gainsight, a leader in customer success. Today, we will be covering three main topics. First, customer success, where Nick's vision started for customer success. Second, the untold story of the future of customer success. And third, the metrics and measurements that customer success impacts specifically around company value. Nick, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics Measure Up podcast.
1: First of all, Ray, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate what you're doing and also some of the amazing guests you've had on. So I'm honored to be in this company. So I'm Nick Madaf, CEO of Gainsight, and I'm very, very passionate about customer success as, as folks that have already interacted with me know eminently well. Now, the way that that happened was I have worked in technology and kind of enterprise technology the last couple decades. And I saw this evolution in kind of the way that customers have power from the old business models where customers really didn't have power to the new models where they have so much power. And think about those old days when companies would sell software and sell products, customers install them or they don't install them. They set them up or they don't, they use them or they don't, but the customer paid all their money up front, And so for the vendor perspective, the success happened when you got the sale. But in these new models where customers are paying you as they go with the SaaS and cloud models, where they can switch anytime, where the people and your customer turnover all the time, where your customers are getting acquired and they're going public and they're going private, there's so much change. Those customers have all the power. In the old world, it was the customer's responsibility to be successful with your product or service. In the new world, it's your responsibility as a vendor. And at Gainsight, we're passionate about helping companies create the processes, teams, systems to make sure their customers are successful. And in that process, keep their customers longer, get them to buy more products and services from them, and get them to be bigger advocates. The metric we look at to measure our success for our customers is we want to help our customers improve their net retention rate, which means all the revenue that they have from their existing clients, how do they get that to grow without even adding any new clients?
0: Well, Nick, that's a great background, and we're going to talk about that net dollar or net revenue retention rate in a few minutes, especially as it impacts enterprise value multiples. But let's take a step back, and I've spoken to a lot of B2B SaaS CEOs who had to evaluate early on in their journey whether their company and their product should be the callus for creating a new industry category. Based upon your own experience in building the customer success category, what was the motivation for you to take that risk and build both a category and a community for customer success? I would say the motivation,
1: being honest, was probably naivete to some extent because we didn't fully know that we were creating a category until we actually started it. So just to give you a little background, before Gainsight, I ran a SaaS company called LiveOffice. And I'd felt the pain firsthand of customers where they had the power. And so they would tell us they're leaving and we didn't even know that they were leaving. And we didn't even know that they weren't even using our product. And we had other customers that were happy and would have bought more stuff from us, but we didn't even know they were happy. We were completely blind to our customers. And I met two gentlemen who had also come out of the SaaS world, Jim Eberlin and Sridhar Pedaneni, after selling my last company. And they had run a SaaS business and they had had the same pains and problems. And they'd come up with the idea for Gainsight and brought me on as CEO, as we were just getting started. And so 2013, we launched the company and we said, okay, great, this is gonna be an amazing new category of software to help companies basically be more proactive with their customers and improve retention and all that. But then we figured out, okay, this is selling to a new job, customer success management. And oh my gosh, in the whole world, there's only like 500 CSMs, you know, there were a few at Salesforce and a few at other companies. And so we realized we actually need to create the category, not because we wanted to, but out of necessity, because if we didn't create the category, there'd be nobody to sell to. So in the early days, we focused all of our effort on helping companies hire customer success managers, justify the cost for a CSM, decide how to organize their company around customer success. Uh, We've written three books on the topic. We run a huge conference on the, the topic. We've written thousands of blog posts. I've done hundreds of podcasts. So we created a category, not because we wanted to, but purely out of necessity. That being said, Ray, after the fact, it's incredibly satisfying and rewarding to be involved in helping to create not just a software category, but a new career.
0: And how important was that intentionality around building the community, not just the category, and making Gainsight kind of the leader in this category of customer success? Was that a critical element of being able to build your own category? I'm glad you mentioned that, Ray. Yeah, because there's building a
1: category and building community, which are very related but different activities, right? In some some categories, you might just have a new type of technology that maybe is a little bit different, but you need to don't need to change the buyer that much. We literally had to had to actually create our own buyers, right? We had to create our customers, and so creating community was existential for us. And so what we did was we realized, you know, whenever there's a new job, and you've probably seen this in your own career, Ray. You know, first time you create a podcast, you know, when you're doing something new, you want to meet people that are going through the same experience. You want to meet because you want to learn from them. You want to share your ideas, and frankly, you want to just be less lonely. You want to feel like you're not the only one going through this. And so, we created this community called Pulse in 2013 when we were just getting started. And when we launched, we we basically said, well, we should do this community, but. It can't just be a customer community because, honestly, we don't have any customers. So, at that point, it would have been pretty depressing. I think my mom would have showed up and maybe some friends. But, you know, we needed to do a community that wasn't just our company and our customers. It was actually the whole customer success community. So, this Pulse community became not about Gainsight, but about getting CS professionals together to talk about what they're going through, whether it's their career path, their compensation, organizational structure culture, right? Things that don't have anything to do with software products, but all about people. And so, we created this community. We created many different ways for people to get together from a big event in San Francisco to an event in London to Sydney to roadshow events and online forums and local chapters all under this brand of Pulse. The idea is we're going to connect the pulse of this customer success community together and we're going to get out of the way. We just want to make make these introductions and get these great people to meet each other.
0: You know, I think that it was very good timing to build a community, but I kind of think about it today. I just saw a poll on LinkedIn where 56% of early stage B2B SaaS companies are trying to create a new category. And at the same time, there are communities everywhere from Rev Genius, Revenue Collective, Product Collective, you know know them all. Do you think a company in 2021, is it prudent to think you can build a category in a community simultaneously, Nick? It's so great you brought that up, Ray, because, you know, one of the top
1: questions I get from entrepreneurs is how do you build a category? And, you know, my first answer, my first answer is, are you sure you want to? And let's define what you mean by creating a category, because I would argue that, Snowflake did not create a category. They basically said, well, there's all these data warehouses out there. We're going to do it in the cloud with better technology that's faster. And last I checked, Snowflake was a pretty good business. You know, Zoom didn't create a category. That's what we're using to record this right now. You know, there's lots of video conferencing before Zoom. This built a really good product. And so I'd say, first off, are you sure you want to create a category? Second of all, let's say you have to, because let's say what you're doing is new do you need a new, create a category of new jobs? That's probably the hardest thing to do. That's We took the most difficult path. Or are you trying to just create a new category of software? For example, I was talking to the CEO of a company that's trying to take space. There were three spaces for technology. that were all different. He's trying to kind of build a solution that combines all three. And that's like creating like a new technology category. I think that's a little different. So be precise about what you're trying to do. Are you trying to shape the job or just shape the way people think about technology? And then on the community One of the big things to think about is Are there already a lot of communities for this job? You know, exactly your point, Ray, about let's say sales, right? So if you said, I'm going to create the main community for sales leaders and sales ops leaders to get together, I'd say you need a more specific hypothesis than that. Now, if you said, I'm going to create a community for sales leaders. In product-led growth companies, because sales is very different when the product is the way you sell, I'd say, great, that's probably an open community. And so in 2013, when we launched, the idea of a community for CS professionals was super novel because there was nothing out there. And we got lucky with the timing that there was an open goal for us. So what I would figure out if I were listening to this podcast is, Do you need to create a category? If so, what do you mean? And for the community, what's something you can bring that's really novel to the world, not just another, you know, kind of imitator of many other communities that are out there?
0: Oh, great piece of advice. But let's do what a lot of entrepreneurs are very good at, and that's pivoting, Nick. And we've talked a lot about the history, but let's look into the future and the vision. One of the interesting things that happens to B2B SaaS companies is they can take advantage of some external dynamics going on. And one of those in our industry is the concept of product-led growth as a new customer acquisition and customer expansion model. So my question to you is how does product-led growth impact the future of customer success, both from a responsibility perspective and an importance perspective? Yeah, it's really interesting because at Gainsight,
1: we kind of sit in the middle of two mega trends. One is customer success and the power of the customer, and the other one is product-led growth. And we actually have kind of products in both of those categories. So, I think about your question all the time. And the short answer is, I'm not sure there's anything that's going to reshape the organizational structure and, and sort of entire business process of software more than product-led growth. Because what's happened is, you're shifting the goalposts. And in some ways this has been happening for a while, right? So think about sales and marketing 10, 15 years ago, before a lot of digital marketing was out there. You you make a cold call to a client, you get them on the phone, right? You actually literally have a phone call, which is such an unheard of thing these days. And you're setting up a meeting to go see them. You bring in a PowerPoint presentation on your company. The client doesn't know anything about you. And you're giving them a demo, and you control the information. You monopolize the information. You've got it. They've got to go through your sales team. Okay, let's say the last ten years, what's changed? Well, you had digital marketing, and you had this this sort of advent of okay, the buyer has all this information at their fingertips. You know, online reviews, checking out your website, LinkedIn, blah, blah, blah. Now the buyer, uh, you know, they say seventy percent of the research is done before they talk to the salesperson. I'm sure you've heard that stat before, right? Then you add in customer success. Now the customer actually you know, actually has an experience before with you, and it was either good or bad, and that's driving you know, their interest. But now you take it to the next level of product-led growth. The buyer's done 100% of the research before they talk to you because they're actually using the product. And just for people that don't know, product-led growth, the concept is the customer starts using the product before they engage in the sales cycle. Maybe it's a freemium product. Maybe it's a product you can sign up for online or there's a free trial, right? There's many products, you know, you can think of Dropbox as a good example of this, right? There's many of them out there. And so that client is actually using your product. So they already know the basics. That salesperson isn't giving them an overview of what the product does. The salesperson's actually helping them get value out of the product so that client will expand. That sounds a lot like customer success, right? Right. And so what's going to happen in product-led growth companies is sales and CS are merging together. And now it doesn't mean they're not going to be two separate roles, but they've got to be tightly, tightly integrated together. In the sales role, what I'm hearing people talk about is this concept of sales assist. What that means is the salesperson isn't selling you. The salesperson is assisting you because you're you're buying and, and you're buying by trying. And so you're trying, you're buying salesperson there to help you, right? And then probably once you get to some, some level of, okay, you're starting to use it, that CSM is now starting to help you grow and get more value, but they're going to be super tightly integrated together. And, you know, the, the folks that are the furthest along in this are the cloud infrastructure companies, the Amazons, the Microsoft, the Googles, right? Because, you know, when you start, you know, your AWS account or your Azure account or your Google cloud account, usually it's somebody puts a credit card in, you know, sets up an EC2 account or, or the equivalent starts programming. You know, that's how it all starts, right? Right. And so if I at Google Cloud, I spent a lot of time with them, you know, they've got this incredible CS team that works really tightly with the sales team. And their job then is to get you to go consume more services and get you to expand and get more value. And so sales and CS are going to be completely reshaped with
0: product-led growth, and they're going to come closer together than ever. I'm totally aligned with that. and I think it's creating one of the new interesting friction points because for years, we've talked about marketing and sales need to be better aligned. And I actually say they need to be integrated with an outside-in perspective, focused on the customer-buyer journey, and that will determine your internal processes and handoffs. But now, with this land and expand kind of model that's being accentuated by product-led growth, the handoff between marketing, sales, and customer success can be kind of fungible. So my question to you, and I know you've talked about the pre-sales and post-sales is going to be dead. And I think it was part of the customer success economy. How do you define where sales begins and ends and customer success begins and ends along this customer journey? Or is it company specific, Nick?
1: Yeah, I mean, as with everything, of course, there's some company specificity, but you ask a great question. And I think there's basically two approaches. One approach is a handoff approach, a relay race. You know The Olympics are going on right now, so you can think about that from an you know, Olympic perspective. And then the other approach is a, an approach where you're teaming the whole way. So one approach is I've got a sales team, and their job is to basically get the client to some level of early commitment. And then that CS person is actually going to own the whole growth of that client, including the commercial side. They're on, right? And so, you have actually this clear demarcation. I was talking to one of our customers who has this model, Ray, and what they do is the salesperson is responsible. This is actually a company in the financial tech space, FinTech. The salesperson is responsible for getting that client to say they're going to spend approximately a certain amount of money with this vendor over time, right? This is in the credit card, kind of next-gen credit card space. So, the client, let's say, is going to spend you know, $1,000 a month. But interestingly enough, it's not a formal commitment because the company makes money based on actual spend. So the salesperson sort of gets a client signed up to say, "Okay, your estimated spend is going to be a thousand dollars a month." Now the CS person is responsible for getting that spend to actually start happening. You're getting them to switch over their credit cards, get the value, and so on. And the CS person 100% owns it after that client kind of gets started. But what's interesting in that model is you can imagine if the salesperson doesn't do a good job, they could be signing up all these customers with the, the hope of a thousand dollars a month, and they end up spending a hundred dollars a month. And so the salesperson gets graded on. What, you know, six months later, what's that customer actually spending? And so they have an incentive to make sure that they're handing that deal off well to the CSM team. So that's kind of a handoff model with a little bit of a check and balance. The other model is going back to that Google Cloud example. A lot of companies have this model where it's like, okay, sales and CS are working together the whole time. CS might even be involved in the pre-sale process. And they're actually working together the entire time, and they're both on a shared number of the consumption or revenue or usage or whatever terminology you want to use from that client.
0: You know, it's interesting that you mentioned a shared number because this is the Metrics Measure at Podcast. And the reason we actually created my company and the Metrics to Measure at Podcast was to try to use sharing common goals across marketing, sales, and customer success as that grounding vehicle to make sure that we're focused on what's driving business outcomes and value, both to the customer and to the company. So let's talk about metrics. So what are the top three to five metrics or measurements that you think a customer success team should be measured upon?
1: Absolutely. So, you know, when you look at customer success, it's a lot like sales or other areas, where there's what we would call the lagging indicators, the output metrics, you know, what are you actually trying to accomplish? And then you've got your leading indicators, which are what are the things that tell you you're on the way? So in sales, that lag indicator is some kind of, you know, ARR or bookings or, you know, something to that effect. Right. But the leading indicator in sales, you know, pipeline meetings, contacts connected, et cetera. Right. And any good sales organization isn't just looking at the rear view mirror of bookings. They're looking ahead down the road on pipeline. And in the same way, in CS, your lagging indicator, you know, the end goal is getting those renewals and getting that expansion. And so people look at two metrics, gross retention rate, which is really just looking at for the existing spend, what percentage that is staying with us, you know, and so the maximum that could be is 100%. And then net retention rate, are those clients actually growing with us? That has no cap. It could be 180%, could be 200%. So those are the lagging indicators. But if you live your life in the rearview your mirror, you're never going to get anywhere. And especially in CS... Where you know, Ray, that sometimes the work you do now is going to influence whether that client renews a year and a half from now. You know, it's not just about what you do the day before the renewal, if there is a renewal. And so what CS people tend to focus on is a set of leading indicators. At Gainsight, we have a framework that we've adopted and that we kind of recommend for the industry. And the framework has a kind of a couple layers to it. The first layer is just saying, okay, at a real conceptual level, customers fundamentally work with vendors because they want to achieve an outcome. You know, that outcome could be their employees get happier because of the software. The customers are doing better. They're growing their revenue, right? There's a business outcome. We all get that, the promise. And then they want to do it with a good experience. They want to like working with you. They want to enjoy it. They want you to be respectful, respond to the emails, and so on. And so what we recommend is a set of leading indicators that measure the outcome and the experience. On the outcome side, when people say, well, what do you recommend, Nick? We have an acronym that we use that's called DEAR, D-E-A-R. Pretty simple, but it's really taken off. Deployment, engagement, adoption, and ROI. So deployment, you know, did they set up the stuff that they bought? You know, if they had bought 100 licenses, how many got set up? Engagement. Are they actually engaging with us on a regular basis? Because we all know that like if you don't have those kind of connections, especially for your larger clients, you lose sight of their goals. So have we talked to the exec sponsor in the last 90 days? And inside Gainsight, we automate all this. Adoption, obviously, are they using the product? And not just are they using it, but are they using the advanced features and functions? So you can kind of score that. And then ROI, this is the hardest one, perhaps the most important. Are they achieving those outcomes that we sold them? Are they getting that business value? And and there's ways we recommend people track all that. So that's DEAR. Then on the experience side, there's a number of things you can look at to see like, how do they feel about us? There's the net promoter score methodology most people are familiar with. It's a survey around likelihood to recommend. There's their customer satisfaction after you know, support incidents. But there's other things like, have they opened up a lot of support cases lately? Have they run into a lot of product bugs? You know Things like that. And so deployment, engagement, adoption, ROI to measure that outcome, and then a set of indicators to measure that experience. That's how it all ties together.
0: Oh, dear, Nick. <laughs> There's so many things I could... I love it. I love the pun. I could dig into here, but I'm going to look at one of the lagging indicators that most B2B SaaS and cloud companies are very focused on today that customer success and customer success platforms can impact. And that's that net dollar retention. And you've mentioned companies like Snowflake a couple of times today. And when you look at net dollar retention, as which is, as you said, is that total ARR, driven by a cohort of existing customers from a year ago this year i use a year time frame and we're seeing 140 150 160% which is unheard of from what it was 5 years ago where 105 to 110% was good and that's directly impacted the enterprise value to revenue multiples and we're seeing it anywhere from 20 25 even 30x for companies with very high ndr so my first question to you is, do you have any insights on where some of those leading indicators, such as customer SAT score, customer health, or net promoter score, how that impacts the net dollar retention outcome, Nick? Yeah, absolutely. So
1: yes, net dollar retention is the valuation driver. And we just did a recent study that showed it was the number one driver of valuation in publicly traded SaaS companies, software as a service companies. So it's higher than even growth rate in the study we did. And so there's this incredible correlation between, you know, improving your net dollar retention and improving your company value. So as you said, how do you improve your net dollar retention? And so what we find is obviously in each business, depending on your evolution, it's going to be different because just when you think about your evolution of your company, in the very beginning, you know, maybe your problem is people aren't deploying the software. So yeah, there you go. That's your biggest opportunity to improve net retention. But at some point you get pretty good at that. And then the problem might be, you know what? We're not getting people to adopt the basic features and functions. And then you get good at that. And then later on, your problem might be, you know what? We're getting burnt because when the sponsor changes, the new people aren't seeing the value and we're not engaging with the right sponsors. And so then engagement might be matter a lot. And then later on, you might get to a point where it's like, you know what? People are using it, but they're just not sure what the business value is. So that ROI might matter. So I'll tell you what we've learned over time. So on net promoter score. It's a very good thing to survey because you'll get good feedback. You can act on it. It's not a highly correlated factor with the customer's retention. The question for people that don't know is, you know, how likely are you to recommend this vendor to a friend or colleague, right? And the concept, when you think about the question, it does have an impact on that customer, that human being at the customer's likelihood to go to another company and buy you again. So that's why it's very important and you should look at it. But it's not what we found is because you won't get everyone to respond to the survey You know, you get different levels in a company and some of them have impact, some don't. I wouldn't overread into it in terms of prediction retention, but it could be a predictor of likelihood to buy in another company. What we find is in terms of retention, in the early days of a company, deployment, get your customers deployed. Later on, get basic adoption. And that's the predictor. Later on from that, get engagement with your exec sponsors and make sure you keep those through all the changes in your customer after that get the roi so we're in the roi phase in our own company when we started looking at customers where we demonstrated roi versus those that we hadn't we saw a 30 point difference in net retention right and that kind of makes sense by the way and doesn't sometimes it's correlation you know maybe the customers that were likely to grow were the ones that got roi but it's a good place to start if you're focusing and then finally where we're going and i think where every company gets eventually is also about stickiness. So we actually will add a, another letter to our little acronym. So it will go from ODEAR to ODEARS. And that D S is about stickiness. So what are the things that your product does that nobody else does? You know, So that over time, as your market gets commoditized, because it will, you know, news to you, every market gets commoditized, you have some stuff that's keeping people saying, okay, we want to preferentially stay with this company. So as an example, in Gainsight, one of our really unique features is something called Journey Orchestrator which is all about saying, how do I take this amazing customer journey and turn it into a repeatable digital model that can scale from the big customers all the way to the small and can mix in you know, emails and human outreaches and even in-app communications? And what we find is our customers that use Journey Orchestrator are massively more sticky in terms of net retention than those that don't. And so what do we do now? We're saying, hey, let's get more people using Journey Orchestrator. So again, in summary, early days, probably deployment then adoption, then engagement, then ROI. And once you get to to where we're at, how do you make them sticky?
0: We're going to get back to adoption and ROI in just a minute, but I want to do something here for our audience and that is bring Nick back to his Math 25 course that he took, I believe his freshman year. We're going to be talking a little bit about the R squared factor of NDR to enterprise value. And I just did this work with Dave Kellogg, who I know you've done some work with at your Pulse conferences. And the impact on enterprise value to revenue multiples, the number one input factor today for B2B SaaS and cloud companies is net dollar retention. And it ranges anywhere from 0.42 to 0.55, and it's only can be as high as one. So it's very important for our SaaS founders and CEOs who are listening today to really understand how net dollar retention impacts enterprise value. And then I, Nick, on your blog, I think you looked at the regression coefficient for how net dollar retention impacts the company revenue multiple, and that was a 0.72%. So go ahead and read the Gainsight blog on this because they think it's very informative. Do you want to double click on that at all, Nick? Yeah. Well, first of all, Ray, it was amazing serendipity because you guys
1: were publishing your stats and we saw ours and did ours at almost the same time. So I guess we were thinking alike and going back to math 25 in freshman year does bring back a little bit of PTSD because that was definitely a hard class. But I think this math isn't that hard in that at the end of the day, when you look at it, you're like, wow this value driver is higher than like growth rate and rule of 40, which is an efficiency metric and things like that. And what I take away from it is that net retention rate really is this metric that kind of is like one metric to rule them all because it captures so much. It captures our customers getting deployed. Are they adopting your products? Are they staying with you? Because you can't have a high net retention rate if you don't customers don't stay with you, but it also captures Are they growing naturally? Are you adding new products and selling to them, right? Because if you're going to have 140, 150, you're kind of doing all of that, Ray. You know, you're not, your customers being deployed, they're engaged, all that stuff. You can't get there without all of that. And so what does that mean for an investor then? It's like, wow, this is a good business. I mean, it's very unlikely that a company that does all those things right isn't going to grow really well. By the way, they're going to also be very profitable over time because as you know, Ray and audience probably mostly knows, you know, it's very efficient to grow through net retention. So it's more expensive to get new customers. And so this investor looks at this metric and says, oh my gosh, this is an awesome business. And it shows, you know, snowflakes, net retentions in the 180s, right? You get why these companies have higher net retention and why the metric matters so much.
0: Yeah. And for our listening audience, you know, we're talking about this net dollar retention and Nick just mentioned it's more efficient, more cost-effective to grow an existing customer to get a new customer. We measure something called the CAC ratio and the CAC ratio is how much sales and marketing and customer success expense is allocated to either gaining new customer ARR, a dollar of ARR, or a dollar of expansion ARR. At median 2020, it was 69 cents of sales marketing and CS expense to grow a dollar of ARR from existing customers—that's called expansion CAC ratio—but it was a dollar fifty-nine to gain each dollar of new ARR from a new logo. So right there, you can see efficacy in the numbers. It's amazing,
1: amazing. And by the way, I think you and I geek out on the same data—you, me, and Dave Kellogg. So we'd probably have a very nerdy happy hour if we all got out together.
0: Uh, oh, we would. Well, let's talk about one more thing before we unfortunately going to have to wrap up today, and that is around this concept of adoption than utilization. I see product analytics as a fast, fast moving market segment, and it's really been accentuated by product-led growth as a go-to-market motion. Nick, how do you see customer success organizations and even customer success platforms having to integrate and use product usage information to help drive more value and continue that engagement?
1: Yes, absolutely. One of the things that's happened is we're in the cloud, people, right? So we should not be guessing about our customers anymore. That's crazy. And yet so many cloud companies are still doing the old school stuff of just sending a survey and saying how they're doing instead of actually looking at what they do. And you you still want to ask how they feel, but you want to see what they actually do as well. That together, you know, Autodesk is one of our clients and they presented our conference about the connection of what they say and what they do and how do you connect those dots together. And today it's not just about hey are they using the product or not? That's table stakes. It's not even just how many users are using the product. It's deeply understanding their usage and understanding things like, for example, what are those sticky features that cause people to really stay with you and have they started using those? What are the pads that take them through the product that are really great? What are the ones that are getting frustrated and where are they getting lost in the product? What features should you invest more in because people are really trying to get more value to those features? Which ones are not taking off that maybe you decommission? right? How do you get much more data-driven about this? But also, this is what's really powerful. How do you use your product as your greatest CSM? How do you actually build the concept of customer success into your product? The first time that you user logs in, how are they getting a personalized guide taking them through how to get value? When somebody logs in and they just bought the product and you understand these were their goals, how do you actually have a personalized guide in the product based on what their goals were? When somebody comes back and they haven't used it for a while, how do you educate them on what's new? There's no reason we have to to do all of this in sort of one-to-one, hand-to-hand combat with the CSM. The product should be your best CSM. And then you have CSMs that kind of work and collaborate and be there alongside the product to help the customer get more value. And so this is the future. Product analytics ties to product-led growth, ties to customer success, and really ties them all together.
0: Yeah, it's going to be very interesting because I've done a special series on product led growth and where that product utilization information resides. After you capture it in your PX platform, how does it go into CRM? And is it usable by the salesperson who's reaching out and trying to convert? Or does it go into the CSM platform? And how does a CS person use that to do their QBRs and ensure that the customer is constantly utilizing those core advanced features, which leads to stickiness, Nick? I'm going to be a big fan of watching this and see what happens over the next three to five years, which that brings up my last question for you. Everybody celebrates liquidity in a VC-backed company, whether that's an IPO or or a strategic acquisition or a private equity acquisition. And everyone who follows their industry knows that you had a huge liquidity opportunity when you sold Gainsight to Vista Equity. But that's not the end. That's just the beginning. So I'd love to hear from you. How do you are going to measure their success of Gainsight, not in 2020, but in 2025?
1: Yeah, I love it, Ray. Thank you for asking that question. Because obviously, you know, anytime you're fortunate, all of us consider ourselves very lucky to have financial outcome that helps all of the families of our employees and obviously helps our investors be successful. We're just so grateful and excited to partner with Vista, who's our new investor. But our journey is so much more than you know short-term investments. So it's so much more than just the financial results. When we look at Gainside, our mission is actually that there's a different way of business that's possible. That customer success is just an example of product-led growth is an example of. And the basic concept is this: a lot of businesses historically felt like they were zero-sum games. I win, you lose. I'm going to close the deal. I'm going to crush my number. But on the other side of that deal is a customer, and inside that customer is a human being. And by the way on your team are human beings as well. And you know you want a real secret? Your competitors are human beings too. Those people your competitors that sometimes you might throw darts at are actually human beings just like you. And so we think there's a different way of doing business where you actually bring your feelings to work. You bring your authenticity. You look at everyone as human beings. We call that human first business. And at Gainsight, our mission is not about customer success. It's to be living proof you can win in business while being human first and this idea of a human-first type business. And we don't wanna be the only ones. And in fact, a number of other companies have adopted this. And so our long-term vision is to build a company that is successful. So that it shines a light on a different way to do business. And we think customer success is an example of this. Where it's about this concept of human first business and you winning and the people at your customers winning at the same time. Now, where that shows up for me day to day and really gives me this kind of emotional satisfaction is this human first celebration of this new career of customer success. You know, like we talked about eight and a half years ago, it was brand new. And honestly, Ray, there's very few things that make me happier than when I get stopped in airports or places by CSNs that say, thanks for making my job relevant. Thanks for making this career happen. You know, and by the way, I will say I'm just part of it. I didn't make the whole thing happen. But, you know, being a small part of that is so rewarding. And so 2025, you know, we want to be a company that's getting this industry going with CS that I think at that point it's very mainstream and now we've connected it to product, CS sales all connected together around customer success. You know, as a business, we built the technology to make all those things happen, but more importantly, our customers are thriving. You know, I feel like, Ray, the best sign of customer success is your customers, the people at your customers are getting promoted. They're loving their jobs. They're finding satisfaction. And, and that's what I want by 2025.
0: You know, I love that human first business. And once again, going back to our theme of metrics at Major Up, one of the things I talk to entrepreneurs about all the time is what is your North Star metric? And often that North Star metric is aligned to your vision or your culture. Do you actually go about trying to measure any of those metrics as far as how you're impacting the community's career trajectory or even what business outcomes your customers are driving? Do you actually measure that?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. It's funny. It's something we want to measure more over time. One thing we measure is the growth in the CS profession. So that's something we do look at and we're very proud of. And also growth and diversity of people coming into CS from different walks of life because you know it's an opportunity to really grow the pie inside tech. So that's something we look at a lot. And then we look at basically people getting promoted. This is not actually a stat. I actually was thinking we should build a stat around this. But one of the things that we track a lot is our customers getting promoted, moving into new jobs, and very excited about that as a concept. And then last thing, which is very early, so there's not much to track yet, but I do think the more companies adopt this human-first type mindset, the more we all win together.
0: Those are great insights, Nick. And now we're going to have to unfortunately wrap up. Like you said, we could go to a happy hour and geek out all day long on this stuff, but let's have the audience get to know Nick a little bit better on a personal basis. And I do that through three quick questions. And the first is which CEO or leader do you think is a must follow in 2021? And Nick, you can't say Mike Tomlin or Ted Lasso. You definitely follow
1: me on Twitter. So those would have been my first choices. I think even after all this time, you know, he's to me one of the pioneers in SaaS is Aaron Levy. I'm fortunate to be a friend of his. He's a CEO of Box, and he definitely combines, you know, humanity, humor, lots of technology, and definitely a must follow from my vantage point.
0: And I'll tell you for our followers who want to be the leader of a public company one day, following Aaron right now is a very interesting journey because he's dealing with some activist investors on his board, and it's masterful the way he's managing it. Second question, which tool, not Gainsight, do you think every SaaS company should be using?
1: Mm, good question. I think obvious ones like you know Slack or something like it, and obviously great video conferencing, things like that. I will say that the HR tech stack has evolved a lot. So we use a technology called Lattice, and I think there's a number of good technologies out there, so I'm not specifically calling them out. But we've had, been very happy with how HR tech has evolved to allow you to really link performance management and employee feedback and everything all together. Because I think just like we talked about customer success, there's a whole new revolution happening in employee success.
0: I love it. So the net was Lattice? Yeah, the company we talked about was Lattice. Right. But specifically HR tech. And I love the underlying. And that's been able to really focus on employee engagement employee satisfaction and aligning their day-to-day objectives to the company objectives, et cetera. Okay. Last question. What advice would you give a recent college graduate or early career professional who wants to learn the ropes of customer success, but her ultimate goal is to be the next great B2B SaaS founder? Oh, I love it. I think customer success is a great
1: way to learn a lot about a business because you kind of have to learn the product, the sales process, the customers, marketing. You, you really learn a lot of what you need to do. And so I think one, if you want to start a company of just my two cents, one opportunity is to go into a company where you can learn a domain. It's not the only way to start a company, by the way, because some people build companies to solve their own problems, but lots of times the business opportunities out there are in these specific verticals and industries. So, you go into a company, for example, that sells into the insurance industry and you learn about insurance and you're like, oh my God, there's an amazing problem to be solved here. And I think so many great companies have come out of people that are just digging around in the giant GDP of the world and finding these corners where they can build big businesses in.
0: Yeah. Let me just double click on this question one layer deeper. And that is, you've, you know, out of college, you were kind of a founder and CEO of a startup, but then you went to a big company. Then he went back to early stage. Do you have any specific advice whether a recent college graduate should start in a smaller entrepreneur company or go get the big company training and experience?
1: Yeah, it's a very, very good question.
0: I I think that, you know, if you go to an early
1: stage company, just recognize what you're getting and what you're not getting. If you go to an early stage company and you're lucky, you join Google or something early, right? That's great. But as we all know, most of them don't work out. And most of them don't end up going anywhere. So I think if you go to an early stage company, what you end up getting is a lot of opportunity to grow and try new things. And so in some ways, if you want to bet on yourself, going to early stage companies is great. My general advice would be going to a company that's a little further along is a good place to start. That could be a pre-IPO company or could be even a company that's public, but it's you know, kind of growing a lot like an Okta or someone like that, right? DocuSign, where you can learn from a great brand and business and then go do something. Because I do think there's something about having that stamp on your LinkedIn or resume or whatever that helps get you some credibility to do your next company. So my general advice is probably later stage companies or recently public companies is a good place to focus.
0: Well, thank you for that insight, Nick. And thank you so much for being a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast today. I really appreciate it.
1: This has been amazing. You asked awesome questions. You and I clearly nerd out about the same
0: stuff. So look forward to hanging out with you again. Thanks, Nick. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying our guests and the topics we discuss on the podcast, it would mean the world to us. If you would subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app, go ahead and give us a rating and even provide your comments on how we can make the content even better for you. Thank you, everyone, for listening today. Thank you, Nick. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.